with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Get the lights back, please. Second Peter chapter 1, we looked at the first four verses last week where Peter goes into detail and we used the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul to help us to understand too that the statement that we see throughout the scriptures born of God is grander, bigger, I don't know what the right description of it is, it's more extensive than, than we understand we, we have a, a concept that, okay, we're God's children now, but I don't know that we have the concept that we are born of God. That when Jesus, when John the Baptist is writing or speaking in John chapter 1, and he says, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become the children of God. That kind of connects that we become his child through faith in Jesus Christ. But what Peter opened with in the first four verses and will throughout this chapter is that God moves in. Meaning that the nature that is Jim is still an occupant of, in my soul. And the nature of God comes into my soul as well. And what is called this divine nature by Peter in verses 3 and 4 is literally this perfect, pure nature that comes in me. So that when I turn to this nature to operate, nothing corrupt can take place. Nothing outside of God's will, nothing sinful. This helps us to understand verses like I mentioned last week. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that, that any temptation that you're experiencing is common to everyone, number one. And number two, there is always a way out. And if you think of that verse alone, it cannot be true if sin is possible when we follow the divine nature. Sin is always avoidable. So why don't we stop sinning? We are corrupted. We are fallen. But the good news of 2 Peter chapter 1 is that when we live by the divine nature, by the Holy Spirit, by this seed, 1 John 3, 9 says that because this seed is in us at all, means that sin cannot just continue. We can't just roll on as if nothing has happened. And this divine seed, which John describes and which Paul describes, is in us, available to us, accessible to us. And when we live by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, we will not, in fact, we cannot gratify the desires of the flesh. That's good news to me. Because it feels more like this, doesn't it? Like, like... There's, there's equal power to equal evil and equal power to good. And, and I'm really trying to do good, but sometimes I just can't. Peter's saying that's not true. That's what Paul says is not true. As we will look in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Let's read the first six verses today. And then we will take a closer look at verses 5 and 6. This knowledge of God, this divine nature, Peter opens with Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, great apologetic statement as I said last week, we find multiple times in scripture that Jesus is called our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. That will be our starting point in verse 5 today. Verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance, overflowing through the knowledge of God. And the knowledge, we will see this word knowledge over and over again in actual several different Greek words. And we explained that the word for knowledge here and the word for knowledge in verse 3 is a deep, intimate relationship with Christ. 
It is an experiential, I have done what he's asked me to do, I've done it for some time, it is always present, and it is this place that God wants to reach with us. So a seemingly simple sounding verse in the book of James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Peter uses a Greek word here for the deepest level of intimacy that we are capable of. Closer to God than anyone is this knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And again, I think it's John 17, 3 says that that's what eternal life is. It's knowledge of God the Father and it's knowledge of God the Son. Verse 3, his divine power, this, we described this last week in the Greek, this theos dynamis, this power by which Jesus cast out demons, according to Luke, has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him and this deep, intimate Greek word here comes across in English as knowledge, but it is this really deep, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Verse 4, through these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. And we talked about that last week. When we say, I choose to live by the Spirit, then we enter into this divine nature. We open up the Bible. It becomes more than words on a page. And we do what it says. And Peter says here, when we do that, we participate in divine nature. The nature of God becomes my nature when I choose to follow him. So much more significant to say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ than a believer in Jesus Christ. We asked that question in church builders last week. If, if there was a, a video camera in Christ Church and outside Christ Church and like the Truman story, followed you everywhere you went, would you be convicted of being a believer? Or of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Because if, if you come in this room and there's, there's no angst in your face and there's no resistance and you're listening to the word of God, but you go out there and do something other than what you learn, you would be convicted of being a believer. I believe it's true. But if you do what it says, if you enter into this relationship of following Christ, if, if you do what Peter says and you participate in this divine nature, then you would be accused of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he says, by doing so, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we're willing to trust you enough to do what you say, if the fear of the Lord is in us, then we take your word seriously. We take your promises seriously. We take your commands seriously. And we take the future, which you give us in advance, seriously. And that seriousness will give us the deepest level of joy, peace, grace, and encouragement that this life can know. And it will be visible to someone who lacks it. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin in verse 5 after Peter has encouraged us, offered to us, explained to us that we can participate in this divine nature, this supernatural dynamis, the Greek word, this Holy Spirit power of God living in us. 
He says in verse 5, for this very reason, since you have access to this divine nature, everything he's going to call us to do now in the verses we look at today, we cannot do on our own. We can't do on our best efforts, but we can do in the participation of the divine nature of God. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. We will inch our way through these. First of all, the word add here is the same word that we use for choreograph. So he is starting at the big picture. We have faith in Jesus Christ. We are living because we are trusting. We are hoping because we are believing. We are obeying because we believe that what he says is sure. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. We receive grace by faith. Faith puts everything into motion. I had a thought about faith, the, the trust in and the surrender to God that opens the door to all of these virtues. I am so sure that Jesus died for my sins and I am equally sure that everything he says that is true that I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to expect his divine nature to do for me what it does for him. In Romans 6 and in Ephesians 1, Paul says that the power that raised Jesus Christ from death to life is in me. That's the divine nature that Peter is talking about. So choreograph, start with your faith. The door is now open. Add these virtues, Peter is saying. And he says, add to your faith goodness. And the Greek word here is for moral excellence. Since you have faith, start right now. I don't know everything the Bible says. I don't know everything he wants me to do. Human beings, um, my Wayne and mom are witnessing to someone who isn't convinced yet of Christ, of eternity, of the truth of God's word. Um, but she knows what's right and wrong. Human beings, even fallen human beings, are aware of moral excellence standards. If you did something that was atrocious to all of us out there, it would be atrocious to person and an atheist. So they cannot participate in the divine nature, but take what you know about God, believe it, seek moral excellence. The, the, the word it, earlier in last week when we looked, um, where it says that he calls us, verse 3, the end of verse 3, by his own glory and goodness, we have the same Greek there. Moral excellence. So the moral excellence that Jesus calls us by in verse 3, because verse 4, we can participate in the same nature he has, Peter says, seek that same moral excellence. Me and my nature, impossible. I can fool a few people. But moral excellence is what we're immediately told to strive for. Peter says, add to your faith moral excellence. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses we looked at Wednesday night, where Paul is talking about moral excellence. And Paul tells them in Ephesus, and he tells us through this letter, that he told them these things when he was sharing the gospel with them on day one. The evangelical world today is so interested in closing the deal. How many people professed Christ today? How many people got baptized today? That we will move away from what Peter and Paul are talking about here so that people can just feel that grace is just being dispensed to anyone who prays a prayer. The things that we will read in Ephesians 4 right now are things that Paul told them when he met them. Jesus Christ is going to expect you, he is going to demand of you to no longer live the way you lived. 
but to follow him in his moral excellence. So in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20, Paul tells us, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. So everything he's telling us in this chapter, he told them when they heard about Christ. Verse 21, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth about Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, repentance. Verse 24, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That sounds too big. What's God's goal for me? To be like him. How is that possible? His nature, his divine nature is in me. And when I'm plugged into his divine nature, he is able to cause me, to lead me, to walk the path that Jesus walked. That helps me understand 1 John 2, 2. Everyone who follows Christ should live as he lived. That seems impossible. It is impossible, back and forth, my nature, God's nature, but it is not possible, or else God could not command it, and Paul could not say in verse 24, when we are created, born again, new creation, seed of God, divine nature, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. All of that we looked at last week in Ephesians 1 and 2. He says here in verse 24 of chapter 4, to put off the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, moral excellence. Peter says, as we go back to 2 Peter 1, and Peter is going to build, these things are going to come in order so that we're going to reach the end. We're going to reach a place, and we're going to reach the same end in 2 Peter 1 that we reach in Ephesians 4. And that is unity in the body of Christ that is immovable. Let's go back to our text, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge. This is the third or fourth time in five verses that the word knowledge has been there. This is a different Greek word here. Um, this Greek word for knowledge is spiritual insight. Knowing the truth and knowing what the truth means. So we start with this divine nature with the offer to be intimate with God, close to Him, walking with Christ, accessible and movable and pliable in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And He says here, start with your faith in Jesus Christ. Add to that moral excellence. Start a path right now. If you were saved yesterday, someone can notice the difference today. There is no three-year course that you're going to take. You have been recreated, Paul says, to be like God. If that happens, I mean, even the thought of God being in me is a little too big for me. But if he is, if God is right here, he should be visible. He should be recognizably changing me. The word for knowledge here is telling me, Peter told us in the opening verses here, that everything comes to us through the word of God. What is the first thing God created from last week? Wisdom. Before he said, let there be light, before the heavens were created, he created wisdom. 
Peter tells us that everything, including grace and peace, be abundance to you in verse 2 through knowledge of God. Your material things actually come through the knowledge of God. The fact that you are saved came through the Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23, you were saved through the living and enduring Word of God. Your salvation came to you through the Word of God. He created everything by His Word, the sword of the mouth of God in Genesis and Isaiah and in Revelation is the spoken word of Jesus Christ. And the word of God, Colossians 1.17, and I think in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, holds everything together. Everything. Your iPad is held together by the word of God. Because nothing exists or continues to exist outside of the Word of God. And Peter says here, when you add goodness to your faith, dive into the Word of God. Because all of these things are going to come to you through it. Add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul is explaining this doctrine of knowledge that Peter is talking about in verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Not that it's that critical, but I just noticed the heading in my Bible before verse 6. God's wisdom revealed by the Spirit. That's what Paul is explaining to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to pick up the text in verse 13. We could easily read from verse 6 through the end of the chapter because that's what all of this is about. In verse 13, we pick it up. This is what we speak, not words taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities and Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned or they are understood only through the Spirit. This dynamis power that lives in us interprets the Word of God to us in a way that he cannot do to a person without the Spirit. Verse 15, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But this divine nature through the Holy Spirit gives us what? The mind of of Christ. The spiritual man, the person who has knowledge of the Word of God, working knowledge of the Word of God, is able to make judgments about everything. How many times has a Christian said to you, what do you think about this? I'm sure I've said it. Paul is saying here, Gently, it doesn't matter what you think about this. You can make judgments about this because God has already given you the conclusion. And he wrote it down and he put it in your hands. As we go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, we add to our, we choreograph through our faith, goodness, through goodness, knowledge. Verse 6 and to knowledge, self-control. Again, it's, I can put myself in a place, let's, let's say it more accurately. I have put myself in places where all of my understanding as a believer would conclude sin was inevitable. 
I know that's not true through the word of God. I know that very practical, very practically what Paul is talking about here when he or Peter's talking about self-control, that self-control needs to include don't go to that place. Don't be where you want to be when he wants you to be somewhere else. That's self-control as well. Um, don't don't put yourself in the temptations which give you the biggest battles. If you walk in the intimacy that is described in the first four verses, you won't find yourself in darkness according to 1 John chapter 1. Um, Paul has an important verse. You can turn there. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy has known Paul now for a couple of decades. Paul is in death row as he writes 2 Timothy. He is in death row exactly like Peter is as Peter writes 2 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, as he writes 2 Peter. He will tell us that later in chapter 1. Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he says to him in verse 7, a verse that is true for us. Timothy, now a pastor in Ephesus, and Paul in prison on death row, receives this verse that is critical to us. Verse 7, 2 Timothy chapter 1, For the Spirit God gave us, this dynamis power, this divine nature, gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. If the Holy Spirit were somehow tempted, what would his success rate be of not giving in? A hundred percent. Paul is telling Timothy the Holy Spirit didn't come to make your spirit stronger because your spirit is in heaven. He wants to change your soul. He wants your spirit to align with his spirit. But the Holy Spirit came so that you would operate in his power, not in your improved power. So when we read Galatians chapter 5, the exact rendering from Greek to English is fruit from the Spirit. Literally, when we obey the fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians chapter 5, in the Greek it's saying that all of the fruit comes out of the Holy Spirit. So I'm operating in the realm of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16, so I cannot fulfill the desires of the, of the flesh. He says later in there, since we are born again through the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's let him lead the way and let's operate in his power. And Timothy, understand that when you do, love is always possible and self-control is always possible because it's not your improved self-control, it's your improved yielding to the Holy Spirit who is always successful. Back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 6, then to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance. And we are struck now with this increasing, this perseverance can't happen on day one. Perseverance can't happen without self-control. It can't happen without knowledge. It can't happen without goodness, and it obviously can't happen without faith, because without faith it's impossible to please God. So Peter is building a strong building here. Faith is the foundation. Moral excellence needs to follow immediately. I don't know everything to do, according do what you know to do is right. Avoid what you know to do is wrong. Titus chapter 2. Grace is given to us so that we would say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. When is grace given to us? Immediately. So add to your faith goodness. So goodness and knowledge and self-control are all attributes that have to be ongoing, present, 
uninterrupted so that now we can step into perseverance. Perseverance is necessary. There's, when you take a look into the scriptures deeply in regards to prayer, for example, there is, a, there is an always present relationship with God that is necessary. How many times, if I looked back at my own life, was I praying when God wanted, would have liked to, desired to move in my life, and I was in and out of fellowship with him? I maybe fellowship with him three days in a row, and I'm praying as hard as I can pray. And he already knows I won't be fellowship with, with him tomorrow. Perseverance is so precious to God. When God has a person who hasn't had any vision, any sign, any good response for a period of time, but they've remained faithful, God is all in that. Perseverance touches God's heart. Perseverance, when I pray, connects my heart to his heart instead of just my words to his ears. Perseverance is critical. Turn to Romans chapter 5. We'll look at a couple of places where Paul tells us where perseverance is born out of, what, what perseverance stands on, and how it builds the way Peter is describing it. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Paul writes, not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. Sufferings are a necessary aspect of perseverance. If you're going to love, if you're going to persevere, you're going to suffer. At the very base level, you're going to give up you for someone else. That's where suffering begins. Well, if we know that, Paul says, verse 3, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. We're going to build beyond perseverance in 2 Peter chapter 1, but you can't build around perseverance. You can't get to what Paul Peter is taking us to. You can't get to hope, which Paul is leading us to in Romans 5. So he says in verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Peter is, is defining our character into the maturity of a body of believers in 2 Peter 1. So suffering, perseverance, character, hope. I'm doing the best I can I'm going to church pretty often. And when I hear people talk about hope, I don't really get it. I don't really experience it. And I think it's because most people want to take suffering and perseverance out of the path at all costs. And hope is most visible after those things. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength was said by an individual who did all things, who went through all things, who says, verse 3, let's glory in this. And if we reach that hope, verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. If you have that intimate relationship with the Spirit, the love, the strength, the hope, the joy that can be yours is yours. Turn to Romans chapter 15 as he talks about perseverance. Romans chapter 15 verse 4. For everything that is written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, 
we might have hope. It always leads us to hope. Verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus has, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify God, our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the progression and the building here again is go to the scriptures. Peter just came from knowledge. Now we're into perseverance. Go into the scriptures, experience them, realize what God did there, apply those things to your life. It will build to hope so that I can be towards you the way Christ is towards me. So that you can be towards me the way Christ is towards you. All of these places in Ephesians 4, Romans 5, Romans 15, 2 Peter 1 as we go back there, are building to the goal of God on earth, which is a unified body of believers who are doing all of these things. And if we become that body, that's the place to be. That's the immovable place where people can see suffering, they can see perseverance, they can see discernment, People making judgments where the world does not agree. But what we'll see is hope. Hope will overwhelm us if we come to this place as a body. Back to 2 Peter chapter 1. He says to add to perseverance, godliness. So we were called to goodness. Obey him immediately when you've stepped through faith goodness knowledge self-control and perseverance he's asking us to be godlike recognizable followers of Jesus Christ so we read back in verse 3 his divine power has given us everything we need for what a godly life through the knowledge of him. So in verse 3, he tells us that in verse 6 and verse 7, where he says, from perseverance to godliness, that you already have everything you need. He put that in you the moment that you were saved. Godliness is man's obligation of reverence towards God. Your thoughts about God become your godliness. Your thoughts about who God is replace your thoughts of what do I have to do. And when our thoughts are on Him and we have a knowledge of Him, we learn to fear the Lord, which the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is I take Him seriously. What He says, I take seriously. 1 Peter 3.15 says that before we even witness, revere Christ in your Lord, as your Lord in your heart. That's what Peter is saying here in 2 Peter. So, we come to verse 7. And when we've gone to Paul's letters and we've looked at this, it's always come back to a body. Everything that we've had so far, faith, goodness, um, perseverance, self-control, is the individual in other words, there's, you can't be anywhere that you're not applying these things. Now he's going to shift in a sense. There's three different ways I looked at this. From the inner to the outer, I'm going to have to do things differently. Visibly do things. Another way I looked at it from, we look at the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are love God. The next six commandments are love your neighbor. 
So we're going to go from loving God, my personal relationship with here, to loving your neighbor in the body of Christ. Another way to think of this is from personal growth to unified growth. We're going to need to do these things if we're going to grow together. So don't set aside what we've talked about so far. This divine nature is giving us everything we need for faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. Verse 7, into godliness, mutual affection. You can't obey this verse on your own. You can't obey this verse in this room, in your chair. You can't obey this verse by agreeing that it's true. Peter begins this letter by calling himself a servant. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, whatever spiritual gift you have, it has to be used to serve others. So serving others, mutual affection, love is what we're building to, but mutual affection that he points us to here. Verse 7, and to godliness, mutual affection. We have to be others focused. The, the Greek word here for mutual affection is Philadelphian. Um, this brotherly love. Um, that we're going to get to agapean love next, but brotherly love isn't a lesser love in this context. Brotherly love in this context is agapean love towards others in the body. In other words, Philadelphian love here is the extreme unity of the body, of everyone being together investing in each other, sacrificing for each other, and meeting each other's needs. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're to have the mind of Christ, to be like Christ, Peter tells us. Paul tells us, as we read 2 Corinthians 2, that, that chapter ends with, we have the mind of Christ. Um, Ephesians 4 ends with being forgiving and loving towards each other, just as Christ did us. In 1 John chapter 3, we're told to be like Christ. Verse 16, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down for our brothers and sisters. We are to take the example of the cross, John says here, in the church, so that it would be as, as foolish for us to avoid each other as it would have been for him to avoid the cross. The love that he had in going to the cross had in mind everyone who will ever live. It had in mind everyone who ought to live for him. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died, 1 John 3.16, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him. And that's what he is saying here in 1 John. We have the example, John says. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other, our brothers and sisters, intimately, brothers and sisters, in your family, in your church. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions, this is how we could, might open a door to a future family member, an angel tree, that has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. Peter shifts gears in 2 Peter to say, we're going to go from personal growth to all-out unity in the church, actions done in truth, mutual affection. And then also in 
1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates their brother and sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. That's a strong command. That's a command from Christ to me. If I love him, I must love my brothers and sisters. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we continue. He says in verse 7, To godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. The word here is agape and a form of agape. We need to move to mutual affection. We need to move towards the people on my register are the people in my church. And I need to be building into them and they need to be building into me. And then Peter closes with, Philadelphian love needs to be expressed through agape love. Agape love is all in, nothing required in return, relentless, never giving up. Agape love. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Paul does the same thing in Romans. We won't turn to Romans 5.8, but in Romans 5.8, in the present tense, Paul tells us that we are continually reminded of God's love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That verse is written in a way that we should think about it every day. In chapter um, 13 of Romans, verses 8 through 10, he says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The only thing that we should continually owe is love. I can't love you enough today. Another way to say this verse. I can't love you enough today to rest tomorrow. I can't love you so much on Sunday that I'll see you next week. In other words, it's an unpayable debt. It never ends. It's never quenched. It's the kind of love that he has for us in Romans 5, 8. Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Back to 2 Peter. Verse 8. If you possess these qualities, everything we've covered today, in increasing measure, not only that you have them, but they are growing you have more knowledge. You have more godliness, more goodness. You have more self-control. You have more perseverance. Your mutual affection is becoming more and more obvious. And your agape love is obviously growing. Verse 8, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the only things that can make us effective. If I'm not growing in knowledge, I'm going through the motions. If I'm not persevering, I'm trying, but I'm not persevering. If I'm not 
continually expressing mutual affection, I'm unproductive. The way Paul described that in 2 Thessalonians 3 is idle and disruptive. Active, Peter says here, productive, successful. He says in verse 8, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, if we turn there for just a second, Paul says this in a pretty powerful way as well. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul's goal to this church, which to my knowledge he hadn't been to this church yet because it was founded by Epaphras. Um, so this is very much hitting home to us who he's never been to our church either. But his goal for us, verse 2, is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may be have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by sound, fine-sounding arguments. Paul is saying here that I want you to tap into the full depth of the treasures and the riches of God, which are found in the knowledge of God, which is found in Jesus Christ. And the, the mystery of God, which he is more than willing to unveil to you completely, is the mystery of God in Christ Jesus. What that means to have his divine nature put in you, to have the mind of Christ, second... 1 Corinthians 2.16, to have the attitude of Christ available to you, Philippians 2.5, to have the power of the resurrection of Christ in you. Paul says, my goal is that you will be filled with encouragement through the realization and the experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul is telling us I have that. I want it for you. I want you to know the hope and the, the depths of the love and the encouragement that I have in Christ. Back to Second Peter as we conclude this morning. Verse 10. Well, verse 9, I'm sorry. Verse 9, But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind. These are not just good. They're not just productive. But Peter is being blunt here. Peter's about to be crucified. He is in prison. His execution date apparently has been set. It's very near and he is just fervently trying to impress this on us. And he says, if, if you've read so far in this letter and you think, man, that sounds like a good plan, read it again. Because I'm telling you that without these virtues, without these characteristics, without knowledge of him, without faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and agape love, if you don't have these, you're nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Christ and what he has done is meaningless to you, Peter says, if these characteristics aren't what you're striving for. Verse 5, make every effort for these things. So people who 
Is it fair to say that the majority of people that go to church are focused on the temporal things? Peter's saying, don't do that. Think of Christ. Think of what he's done. Think of his promises. Think of what he wants to do in you. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4.18, so we fix our eyes on Jesus because what we see is temporary. What we don't see is eternal. And if we fix on those things, he will do these things according to verses 3 and 4. Everything you already have to do all of these things is already in you if you are in Christ. Verse 10 Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. This is one thing that I will be dogmatic about. I'm glad I'm not the judge, but the Bible is very clear about this. The only way that I can say that I know that I will be in heaven is by what I do. John says, let us not love with words and speech. James says, don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you believe. Peter is saying, if you don't do these things, you're nearsighted and blind. And then he says in verse 10, he says, make your calling and your election sure. This is confirmation in the Bible. Confirmation isn't a course in a church. It's an intimate working relationship with Jesus Christ and his knowledge and your growth, your perseverance, your mutual affection and your love. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, and again, this is that divine nature, you will never stumble. Is it impossible to be in the process of transformation and sin. It's impossible. It's not impossible for me to stop being transformed, to stop listening to the word, to start listening to the world. That is possible. But Peter says here, if you do these things, <coughs> you will never stumble. Verse 11. And remember this you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, like Paul, brings us back to the Bema seat. He doesn't have the insight to it that Paul does. So he simply says here, meeting him is what I want to leave you with today. Thinking about the Bema seat, where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, well, we will be judged for everything we've done since we were a believer, good or bad. Peter says, if you do these things, you'll never stumble, and you'll have well done and good and faithful servant in your future. Lord, thank you for this letter. I don't think anyone in this room is more or less challenged by Peter, if they're open to what he is saying. We are all challenged. The Christian life is not an easy life. But there is no life on earth outside of it. There is no fulfillment. There is no peace. There is no love. There is no encouragement. There is no joy. There is no promised eternal reception to any other life. So I pray, Lord, that as I think of the mutual affection that is necessary in this church, God, I want to praise you for the mutual affection that exists in this church because it is unique in this world and it is powerful. And I love these people and you can see that we love each other but the ever-increasing growth that we need is also evident in these areas. Please help us. 
please, each time a person in this flock takes a step of obedience, please affirm that in their life, confirm their election, turn it into perseverance, turn that into mutual affection, turn that into Christ-like love for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.